Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Old Testament, to the eighth book of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. We are starting a new series this morning, and looking at the book of Ruth, and take a few weeks, a brief series, in considering the goodness of God, His redemptive work. Beginning this brief series in, a, in really what is a unique book. If you want to use the, the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 184. It's a unique book because it's one of only two books in the Bible named for a woman. And it's the only book named after a Gentile woman. And so we come to this after number of weeks of looking and Sunday evenings of considering the the lives of the apostles I I thought it might be good to consider uh, the story of Ruth she is really the model of faithfulness and during the time of, uh, of national unfaithfulness she's a woman that real, we see had a a unique background I find because we have a college and seminary, I, one of the things I try to do in preaching is to preach from both the Old Testament and the New Testament so that our students are aware of the different genres of biblical literature. And I trust that as we study Scripture together, that helps us in studying the Word of God, that, that you learn how to personally study the Word of God. Do we have those slides back there? Okay, we're having trouble with those. All right. They will work on that. And so if, if they don't get it, I will help you fill in the blanks. I know for our, our perfectionists that, that's frustrating, but I will help you with that. When we come to the book of Ruth, we, we find that it is a story that tells of difficulties. You know, difficulties make good stories. But we really don't want to go through them. Years ago when we were living in Maine, when I was pastoring in Maine, Judy and I were asked to speak at a weekend parenting seminar in February. And as it approached, in checking the weather, we realized that there was a major snowstorm headed for New England, and it was going to disrupt air travel in a significant way. And so I was able to change our flights. I moved them a day earlier so that we could get out before the storm hit. Unfortunately, the storm also arrived early. And so as we headed to the airport, it was already beginning to snow uh, quite a bit. And uh, as we're checking in for our flight, I look over and I see a number of people that are trying to check in, but they're flying standby. And I told Judy, they're not getting out. This is going to be a full flight, and they're, just, they're not going to get out. And so when we got to the gate, they made the, the announcement that you often hear when there's a full flight. We're looking for volunteers that would be willing to take the next available flight, and we'll give you some compensation. But then they went on and said, but the next available flight won't be till next week. <laughs> it was going to be four or five days away, and of course, nobody moved. Nobody wanted that flight. Nobody took them up on their offer. So we boarded our plane. We got on that small plane. And as we were sitting there, they came on and said, we do need a couple of people to get off. 
They said, we have a, few pe- a couple of people who have to fly. They've got a seniority or they have to be elsewhere. So we're, we need a couple of volunteers. And again, no volunteers. So they said, we, do, we will have to then choose people based on whatever you know, algorithm, their, their metric to vote you off the plane. And so they called a couple of names. And those people begrudgingly began to move off the plane. And, and all this time, Judy and I are praying, Lord, if you want us to do this conference, you have to, this is out of our control. And so you have to keep us on this plane. And so they, they began to make those selections, and they pulled people off, and we thought, okay, we're good. Thank you, Lord. And, we're, and then they come back on. And they said, one of those people that we pulled off has to fly because they are to be on another plane. They actually worked for the airline. So they, they got put back on the plane, and, and so we're praying again. And we don't get selected. We get to stay on the plane. And then we have to go for de-icing. Now, I've been on planes many times when they've been de-iced. It's not that big a deal. But this one was taking a lot longer. And then the pilot comes on, and so we're actually checking. We have to make sure we have the right weight ratios, the right fuel ratios, based on the conditions for takeoff. And I'm thinking, this is not sounding good. And, you know, I've flown in and out of that airport many times. There's two ways you can take off or land. One is out over water, and the other is out over trees and farm country and lakes. Neither of them make for good emergency landings. And so we really were looking at this, and as we begin to lumber down the runway, it's like, we're not picking up the speed I like. You know, I, I like them to take off quickly, and it's, they're using the whole runway on this one. And I, and I turned to Judy, I said, you know, this is the stuff that great missionary biographies are made of. <laughs> but you don't want to be part of it. You know, when tragedy occurs, it makes for an intriguing story. But we don't want to live through it. We, we, it's one thing to read it, it's another to live it. And, and the truth is, we're not all that interested in, oh, I went to the airport, everything went fine, and there were no problems. Well, fine. Well, when we come to the story of Ruth, the passage we consider is a story that really speaks of God's mercy in life problems. It's a story that takes place during a tar- dark time in Israel's history, but it demonstrates God's loving kindness, His goodness to ordinary people who were facing problems. And what we're going to see is that that for a story to really be exciting, there needs to be danger, there needs to be difficulty, there needs to be struggles, there there need to be some type of a threat because of some circumstances. And, And the book of Ruth contains all of that. But overarching and what we find in this book is the idea of God's loving kindness. The word loving kindness comes from the Hebrew word hesed, which is very rich in meaning. It it speaks of a steadfast love. It speaks of of goodness and grace, of, of a covenant faithfulness that God has for his people. It really is a, a story of love and tenderness. And it speaks of it's a story that speaks of sacrifice during a time of violence and anarchy. And, and yet, in this particular story, what we find is there are no villains, so to speak. There are no bad characters. There are, there are people who have seemed to make some unwise decisions. They, they behave in a pragmatic way, but, but not what would, we would see in a, a story of having a scoundrel. 
And what we see is ordinary people facing the problems of life, facing difficulties and trying to make it work. There are several themes that, that go through this book, and I, I just want to bullet point these for you, but I would encourage you to read this book. You can read it in less than 15 minutes. Now, don't read it during the service, um, but I would encourage you to read over it. But as you read, there are several themes that you're going to see. Number one is God's loving kindness triumphs over life's tragedies. You find that in this, this book. There are going to be problems. It's actually the bridge book. It's, it's the bridge between the death of Joshua and, and the coming monarchy. The time between the, the God's appointed leaders of Moses and Joshua and then what is going to set up for the monarchy. And you find that with the very last verses as the, the last statement in this book is the genealogy anticipating the birth of King David. The opening paragraph that we'll consider in just a few moments introduces us to the hardship of, of famine, of death, and despair. And yet through this book we see God's love in, in ways that those involved could never have imagined. And they had no control over. If you want a simple outline for the book, chapters 1 and 2 are love's demonstration. Chapters 3 and 4, love's compensation. We see God's love dis displayed, and then we see that love repaid in, in the lives of others who demonstrate it. There's really three main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And so we see that God's love in the midst of tragedy. The second theme, though, is God's providential control is displayed by placing a Gentile woman into the lineage of the monarchy. Here is this woman, Ruth, from a pagan people, and, and what could she do to be part of the, the lineage of the Messiah? Nothing of herself. And yet throughout this book, you're going to see the control of God. You're going to see the hand of God, but it's not in the ways that we see this great event. In fact, the way the book is written, and we don't actually know the author, but it's written in such a way that it's almost by the way. The circumstances just so happen. So when Ruth comes back to Bethlehem after being away, comes back in, in really great bitterness, it says, oh, and it was the time of the barley harvest. It just so happened. And then when she goes to glean in a, a field, she just happens to go to the field of Boaz. And there are all these seeming coincidences, which are really God's providential control and care. You know, too often we think of providence as Christian luck. Now, we wouldn't say it that way, but if things go well, well, it was just providential. If it goes poorly, it was something else. Economic downturn, mistreatment, tough times, bad people. But God is still in control. And here we see God working behind the scenes to place this woman into the covenant community of, of God's people and to be the great-grandmother of King David. The third theme, theme that we see is Ruth's faithfulness provides testimony during a period of Israel's rebellion. This is a dark time in Israel's history. And yet here is a faithful woman. And her faithfulness really stands as a contrast to a, to a period of Israel's history that was marked by weak faith and irresponsible conduct. The cycle for Israel was that of rebellion, God's judgment, repentance, and then they rebel again. God brings blessing and then they stray. And yet Ruth is faithful. 
And a fourth theme is the role of the kinsman redeemer. It teaches us about God's steadfast care in redemption. This is an interesting theme, and the story introduces us to a number of Old Testament customs, and we'll consider those in coming weeks. That, but these customs were established to protect the family heritage, the lineage, the, the property that was given in the promised land. And so there was the idea of the kinsman who would be a redeemer, who would buy back that which had to be sold. It's a wonderful story. It's the story of the marriage between Ruth and Boaz, a couple that is brought together because of their godly character. That what we will see is it is their character that brings them together. In fact, the Hebrew word for kinsman is used 13 times in these 85 verses. It speaks of buying back, of redeeming. And it's a picture of God's redemption for us as the bride of Christ. And we see these themes coming through here. So the, the, what I want us to consider this morning, though, in this passage is God's loving kindness is sufficient to overcome the painful experiences of life. We face those, and we're going to see that in, in the lives of these individuals, but God's loving kindness is sufficient regardless of what comes. If you have your Bibles open, our text this morning is going to be the first five verses, but I want to read ver Ruth 1, down, verses 1 down through the verse 13 to give a little bit more of the context and to understand what is taking place. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman, was survived, her, woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the country from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And so she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go. For I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them to be grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. 
For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that we would receive it as your word and apply it personally to our lives, that we would see your care and kindness, and that we too would be willing to trust you in the midst of difficulties. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In these verses, we're going to see God's loving kindness that is sufficient in the midst of difficulties. There are a number of difficulties listed in these verses, and and the truth is no one likes pain. It usually comes for a reason. It tells us that there's problems, though it may not be personal problems, but that we live in a fallen world. And in the opening verses, we find a family facing pain. There are a number of aspects that are coming. The first thing that we see is God's loving kindness endures in spite of societal corruption. That's the first thing that we see. It says in the opening verses, and it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. That's telling us about the society. That these were not the good old days. The days of the judges were not a positive sign. Uh, well, what was it like? Well, look at the very verse above Ruth 1.1, either back a page or just above it. The, the last verse of the book of Judges, in Judges 21, verse 25, it says, And in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When everyone decides what is right, what they think is right, a lot of things go wrong. And if you read through the book of Judges, you find this happening. Back in chapter, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that it was a generation that did not know the work of God, which he had done for Israel. And because of that, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. It says they forsook the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, that, that they didn't understand that. In fact, they went to the nations around them, and they bowed down to their gods. And so God's anger was kindled against them. In in Judges chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says that Israel intermarried with the pagan nations around them and served those gods. They, They disobeyed God. That was the time of the judges. It was a time marked by a faltering faith and careless conduct. In fact, one of the highlights during the time of the judges, if you read the book of Judges, was probably Gideon. And, and even though he was one of the high points, he had a number of problems himself. He had many wives. He had 70 sons. And a son of one of his concubines ended up killing all but one of those sons to consolidate pro- the power. That was the time of the judges. Ruth may very well have been a contemporary of Gideon. And yet in contrast to that culture, Ruth's character and conduct... Are, are one of faithfulness. And, and her life is a con, contrast to both Israel and Moab during that time. And it's a reminder for us that you too can be faithful in a corrupt culture. We, we live in a, a day of a corrupt culture. We see it getting worse and worse. The, the things that are going on in the news, the hostility toward our Christian values. And to raise a family during that time is difficult. And so we find a man living in that time, a man named Elimelech, with his wife and two boys, and not only do they face societal corruption, now they see economic distress. And that's the second thing I want us to understand, is God's kindness endures regardless of economic difficulties. 
the economic distress that comes. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, it may have been caused by the raiding parties of other nations. We don't know. It's a situation that created a, a circumstances that few of us have ever experienced to live in a, a time of famine. The, the point that it reaches for this man that, that it might be wise in his thinking to leave his home so that he can find a way to feed his family. Now, in the Old Testament, famine often spoke of God's judgment. And it would seem that that was the case here as well because in verse 6, it seems to imply that God had visited his people, that the judgment had come, and when there's that repentance... And really the proper response, what we find in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 for Israel was, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That was God's admonition for Israel. If you do what's right, you will have blessing. You are in the promised land. If you disobey, I'm going to bring judgment. But Elimelech deals with the physical problems. He's not going to stick around to deal with the spiritual problems with his people. He was part of these people. And so he leaves Bethlehem, which means house of bread, because there's no bread. And he goes to the land of Moab. And we see that it may have made sense, humanly speaking, but human planning does not work properly without God's guidance. And so the third thing I want us to see is that God's kindness endures in spite of human pragmatism. Elimelech makes a, a decision that frankly made a lot of sense from a human perspective. But understand, decisions have consequences. Because this pragmatic decision is going to impact his family significantly. It probably made good sense, humanly speaking, and I'm sure he, he had the answers when he justified it to his friends in Bethlehem. You know, I'm like, why are you leaving? God can provide. We need to trust. Well, no, I got to take care of my family. You know, I got to look out for my boys. And if I don't make it happen, who will? And I'm sure he was thinking like the rest of the culture. He did what was right in his own eyes. But there's no indication that he sought the Lord's guidance. And he's taking his family from the land of promise, going to a pagan land, instead of trust the Lord with all your heart. Now, Moab was, was not a friendly nation. Moab was a nation that had its very beginning because of God's judgment. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah back in Genesis chapter 19 because of their wickedness and their sinfulness and, and Lot fled and he first went to the city of Zoar. But after the destruction, he wasn't comfortable there so he fled up into the mountains. And as he goes into the mountains, and if you're familiar with the story, his wife defied God's word and looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. And, and so now he's alone with his daughters. And while he had gotten them out of Sodom, the morals of Sodom were still in them. And they figured the only hope of preserving the family lineage was to enter into an incestuous relationship with their father. 
And so they get locked drunk, they participate in this vile behavior, they conceive and bear sons, and the older daughter bore a son, and his name was Moab. And so both the Moabites and the Ammonites came from that sordid relationship between Lot and his daughters. In Numbers 22, we find the king of Moab trying to get Balaam to curse Israel so that God would destroy them. And when that won't work, Balaam tells him, well, I can't curse Israel, but if you can get them to sin, God will judge them. And so the people of Moab encourage Israel to participate in false worship and immorality, and God's judgment falls. In Judges chapter 3, the king of Moab, Eglon, defeats Israel, and Israel has to serve him for 18 years during the time of the judges, until Ehud dispatches of Eglon. That's described in the book of Judges. It's very graphic, it's gory, but finally Moab is subdued. That's the nation of Moab. The trip from Bethlehem to Moab would not be an easy journey. It'd be 50 to 75 miles, depending on which route they took. It was on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's in modern-day Jordan. Actually, working on a trip to Israel and Jordan in 2025 that would take us to that land. It's where, where Mo, Moses was able to look at the promised land from here. It's where he was buried. But it was not an easy trip. In fact, to give you a map to show you the settled areas at that time, the, the blue square is where Bethlehem is. The, the yellow circle is the land of Moab. It was out of the area that had been settled and the given to Israel. So they had to go down into the Jordan Valley or down around the, ed, the, the tip of the Dead Sea to get there. And then they had to go back up. A second map gives you the, a little bit of the lay of the land. So, so this wasn't just a straight shot. And to make that trip with his wife and sons would be difficult. Imagine making the trip back for Naomi after the loss. So Elimelech is leaving the promised land to go to the land of Moab. Elimelech means God is my king. That's what his name means. You know, that's a wonderful name, but it doesn't seem to be demonstrated by his life. Yet, you know, we, we bear the name, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we bear the name Christian. Do we live that way, Christ follower? Do we, do we wear the name in such a way that it shows that we're living by faith? What a contrast between Elimelech and the individuals we considered last week from Hebrews chapter 11. He's removing his family from the godly influences that might have still been there in Bethlehem. He's moving out of the promised land. He's going to the land of Moab, a land that had attacked Israel. And his plan is just to stay there for a short time. In fact, that's what verse 1 tells us, that, that he's going to sojourn. The, the idea is that he's going to dwell, at, but it's, it's just for a short time. I mean, he's not planning to live there. He's certainly not planning to die there. But that's exactly what he does. He dies in Moab. And so the four, fourth thing that we see is that God's kindness endures in the face of sorrow and personal loss. Now we find Naomi. She's lost her husband. Did she agree with this decision to go to Moab? We don't know. But she's now bearing the brunt of the consequences of that decision. She is a widow in a foreign country. 
Being a widow in that day was very difficult. To be a widow in another land as a foreigner was even worse. What thoughts do you think went through her mind? God, what did I do wrong? God doesn't want me to be happy. Why is this happening to me? Now, not every tragedy that comes into our life and marriage is because of personal sin. And and to think that way is not a biblical response, but it, it is often a very natural response. God must be against me. But we live in a fallen world. It's a world of pain. And, and when sorrow comes, it doesn't mean that God is judging us, but, but God's grace is going to be sufficient. Here is Elimelech. He, he's trying to take care of his family, and now he dies and leaves them in a very difficult and uncertain situation. He's outside the covenant community. Decisions have consequences. The distance, the difficulty... Do you think Naomi was in a vulnerable situation? She's lost her husband. She's living in a foreign land. She's trying to raise her boys. And and regardless of how old they are, and we don't know, but she would have felt responsible for them. And in time, they they meet a couple of local girls. The relationships blossom. These are wonderful girls. and, and, And yet... Joshua had warned at the end of his life in Joshua 23, 12, he warned against intermarrying with the inhabitants of the surrounding nations. And he told them, if you do this, you're going to remove yourself from God's blessing. But what's a person supposed to do? I mean, how many options are there? It makes practical sense rather than walking by faith. You know, there are limited prospects, right? Look, we can still trust God. You know, God provided a spouse for Adam when he was the only human alive. God can meet the needs in his way and in his time. But the weddings take place, and I'm sure it was a wonderful occurrence, and and now Naomi has some stability, and, and she's anticipating grandchildren, and so the legacy, the lineage of her husband can continue. And after 10 years, there's no grandchildren. And then Malon and Kilion die. Their names mean sick and pining. I'm not sure why you'd name your kids that. You know, I I think weak and whining is what comes to my mind. But, you know, I I don't know what they were like, but I I don't think that they were starting on the high school football team. I don't think they were. they, They seem to have had health issues, and they die. And this situation seems impossible. And the fifth thing that we see is God's kindness continues even when the situation is humanly impossible. Can you think of a worse situation for Naomi? A widow in that day who relied on family and now she is outside the covenant community of Israel. Her husband has died and her sons have died. She's buried her boys. That's not supposed to happen. You know, we, we think as parents, you know, our children will, bear, you know, will bury us. We, we don't expect to bury our children. And yet how often does that happen in the grief that comes? Naomi has no husband, no sons, no grandsons, and she's in a foreign country. And on top of all of that, she feels a responsibility for her, her daughters-in-law. 
She, she still senses that she loves them and they love her and, and, and she finally decides to head home. Why? Because the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. You know, what can she do to change her plight? She knows the Jewish laws that if she had another son that they would marry the, the, the daughter or the, the wife of the deceased and continue the lineage. That was, that was the, the custom and we'll look at that when we get to that in later chapters. She knows the Jewish customs of marriage and continuing the family line but she has no more children. And they're saying, well, we'll go with you. She says, look, I'm not going to have any more sons. And even if I did, are you really willing to wait? I mean, if I, if I got married tonight and had sons, if I had twins, do you really want to wait until they grow up and marry them? She said, you know, I, I appreciate your concern for me, but go home. How does she view it at this point? I don't think we really have to guess. The irony of the situation is that God is the only one who can meet the needs of this situation. God is the only one who can provide for Ruth. But Naomi's looking at her own resources. And she said, I've done an inventory. I got nothing. I can't help you. She's looking at what she can do. She has nothing to offer. Folks, are we willing to trust God and walk by faith when we take personal inventory and say, you know, I don't personally have anything to offer. But I have a God who does. You know, the situation is humanly impossible. If you were to come to Naomi at this point, at verse 5, and tell her, just wait a minute. It, it, the story's not over. You are going to hold a child. You're going to look into the eyes of your grandson who will look into the eyes of his grandson who will be the greatest king in Israel's history. I don't think she would have believed us. It doesn't make sense. She would have scoffed at that idea, but God's loving kindness will not, overcome, not only overcome the pain of, of this life experience, he's going to replace this pain with unimaginable joy. The sixth thing we see is that God's kindness overcomes human disillusionment. What was Naomi's attitude? Well, we, we read it in verse 13. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She has become bitter. There's a bitterness of life. In fact, that's what when she comes back to, to Bethlehem, and we're going to look at this in next week, Lord willing, as, as they come back and the people are like, is this Naomi? Wow, she's gone through it. And she says to them, her name means pleasant. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. That's what life had done. She's battling bitterness, the bitterness of life. She's encouraging her daughters-in-law to, to go back to their people and to their gods. She's not necessarily rejecting God herself, but she's not willing to have anybody else go out on that limb. She's saying, you know what? Go back to your people. Go to your mother's home. You'll find another husband. There, there are some nice Moabite men around somewhere. You can meet them. You can, you can find somebody else. You can get married and have kids, and, and it will go well, and, and serve your gods because my God doesn't seem to be doing much. That's really what we see with Naomi. 
When difficulties come, when bitterness comes, it it causes us to to doubt God and, and really bitterness is becoming angry with God. Anger at things that we can't control but we think God should have done differently. And it causes us to doubt God's goodness and distrust Him and blame Him. The question is, are we willing to still praise God when sorrows come? God is still good. You know, it's one thing to say God is good all the time when things are going well. It's much harder to say God is good all the time when you're a widow and has lost your sons and you're in a foreign land. But it's still true. And, and God is working. And what He is going to bring about is an amazing marriage and the lineage that will continue. But you know, sometimes we can say God is good all the time. And sometimes it's hard to mean it. Naomi never said, I'm through with God, but she's telling her daughters-in-law, look, go back to your gods. You, you go back. One of them does. And understanding the difficulty. Folks, do we understand that God's goodness is such that he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for our salvation? The whole idea of a kinsman redeemer that is going to point to Jesus Christ as our redeemer who buys us back from the the penalty of sin that deserves to be paid because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what sin earns is death. The wages of sin is death. But it's God's gift in giving His only begotten Son that Jesus' blood and His righteousness, that when we trust in Him alone, we can have salvation because He died in our place. That is the goodness of God. And so in spite of what we're facing, in spite of the trials, in spite of the difficulties, to realize that God is good all the time. He knows best all the time, and He is powerful. He is able to do what He is seeking to accomplish. At this point in this story, it is a very bleak story. It is a story of pain and despair, and frankly for Naomi, of bitterness. God has dealt harsh with me. Go back to your gods. I've got nothing to offer. Her bitterness hurts her testimony. But what we see is God is at work and the faithfulness of Ruth that is going to be seen in this. But the question I want us to consider this morning is, how big is your God? Are we willing to trust Him when difficulties come? Do you trust Him consistently for comfort even in the face of calamity? You know, that's, that's when it's hard and say, Lord, I don't understand, but I do trust you. That He's big enough to handle your pain and my pain. Do you trust Him with your hurting? That little baby that she holds back in chapter 4, verse 16. People, the, the ladies name him Obed. He will be the grandfather of David. And then our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will sit on the throne of David. This is an amazing picture. The closing verses of Ruth chapter 4 really are the opening verses of Matthew. When we read of this genealogy leading to the coming of Jesus Christ. See, God's loving kindness is sufficient to overcome the painful experiences of life. 
But we have to be willing to trust him. When Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, we have that hope. We have that confidence. We have that trust. But we have to be willing to cast our cares, our burdens upon him, and know that he cares for us. Are you willing to do that this morning? Let's pray together.